All right. Wow, that is loud. All right. We good? Maybe if I get a little reverb, a little echo, like, good morning, good morning, good morning. All right. Sorry about it. Sorry. A little discombobulated. My timer up there wasn't on when I walked out here, and that means I just get to go forever, right? Until people just get up and start randomly leaving. That's the way they do it in Africa. I went on a, on a mission trip. I've been to Haiti. I've been to Africa. I've been to Nepal, different places on mission trips. That's the way they do church in the rest of the world. Did you know that? They just, I asked the pastors, like, when does church start? And they go, when people start arriving. I go, when does it end? When everybody leaves. And it, it, it's an all-day event. I promise this won't be an all-day event, though. This would be both the first and last time some of you visited us here today. Um, but, um, gosh, I'm just so, uh, I'm so excited to look out and see the blue sky, see the buds starting to come out on the trees, just see what feels just like new life. This has been a tough winter in a lot of ways for a lot of us, I know. And it's just exciting. We're going to turn the waterfall on in a couple weeks, and so we're going to start having that going. Um, and there's just so much to celebrate. Today, when we bring it back into, into those things that revolve around Christ and doesn't everything revolve around Christ in, in, in some way, it all does. Um, but we're today, specifically. Anybody know what the significance of today is? It's Palm Sunday. Very good. Very good. We're not going to do a specific Palm Sunday message, but Palm Sunday just fits so nicely into the whole theme of what we're talking about this Easter. And what we're talking about is supernatural peace, supernatural peace that Jesus gave us and how that applies to the world today and what that peace, what a weapon that can be to go out and do the things that we're called to do in the kingdom. And so when we talk about Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday is, and if you don't know, many, many do know, but a lot of people don't know that. What Palm Sunday is, it's an observance of when, Scott, leave those open. Leave it open. And I just love, I just love the blue sky and the air and the feeling and all that kind of stuff. Life happens out there. So if anybody hears a car going by, that's life continuing, right? And that's people that we should be inviting in here, by the way. But anyway, um, it's Palm Sunday signifies when Jesus, they call it the triumphant return, when he triumphal, tri, triumphantly enters Jerusalem, when he comes back riding on the back of a donkey, fulfilling prophecy, but he comes back and he enters Jerusalem and he enters through a gate and the people have lined up in front of this gate and they're waving palm branches at him. They're waving palm branches, and they're singing. They're shouting out, Hosanna to the Lord in the highest. They're so victorious in that moment. And Palm Sunday, what the palms signify is victory. Back in those days in that culture, what they would do when, when armies would return from battle, when they were victorious, they would grab palm fronds, and they would... They would pour the accolades on the returning army and just shower them with palm fronds and, and fan them as they came back in. It was a symbol of a victorious army. And so when Christ returns and he's entering into Jerusalem, the symbolism of the palm fronds is victory. 
That's what it means. It doesn't mean we're trying to shelter him from the, from the sun. We're trying to fan him because it's hot. It's victory. And so when you see that and when you hear that, and today on Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 plus years ago, when Jesus entered Jerusalem for what is his final entry into Jerusalem, it's with victory. And it's under the banner of victory. And so... That's what we're going to talk about here today when we talk about the message. By the way, welcome everybody out there online, all over the world, wherever you are, and new faces here in-house. I see some people I haven't seen in a while. I see some new faces that I've never seen. I would love to get a chance to meet you and talk to you after service. So we'll be hanging out. I'll be hanging out for for hours if necessary afterwards. I'd love to be able to at least say hi because it matters to us that you're here. And I love seeing all you guys here But we're talking about the Easter season in general, and it's composed of several, you know, the Holy Week contains so many different, Maundy Thursday and and Palm Sunday and uh, all these different things that happen. We're going to be observing Good Friday, this coming Friday, and then obviously Easter Sunday. And it's all about victory. It's all about what Jesus did for us. Jesus did two things for us in what we commonly lump into Easter. We commonly talk about the the crucifixion on the cross, and then we talk about the resurrection from the grave. It's two separate things, two separate events, and it accomplished two different things, both of which we can be thankful for, both of which we should be celebrating at a time like this. Most of us have heard the passage. I say most because you never assume that everyone has heard it, but it's hard not to have heard this one. John 3.16, right? Most of us could recite it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you take that scripture and break it apart, (coughs) break it into two, there's two things. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, number one, but have eternal life, number two. That's two things that were accomplished on the cross. And step one, which happened on the cross, was when Jesus paid the price for all of us so that we would not perish. Because our sins would have led to death. And he did that for us so that we would not perish, but then have eternal life. But when we talk about the paying the price for all of us, that was foretold, that was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years ago before Jesus. The prophet Isaiah said this, 53, Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. It's kind of a long one, but I, th- I think we have it up there. But it's one that most of us have heard at one point or another. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. That's what was accomplished on the cross. And by sacrificing himself for us on the cross, the spotless, perfect lamb of God, giving himself up willfully for us. And when I say us, it's not this global us. It's you, and it's you, and it's you, and it's you, and it's each one of you. 
He knew who he was doing it for, not just a random act. He knew that he was doing it for you. And by doing that, he reconciled you to a holy God. He paid the price for our sins, your sins, to a just God. He broke the power of sin and death and offered forgiveness. And then offered eternal life in exchange only for our faith in him. And not just eternal life, sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Anybody ever seen the images of heaven and thought, why would I want that? I'm going to sit on a cloud and play a harp and, and maybe eat grapes or something for the rest of my life. That doesn't sound like what I want. Thankfully, that's not what was offered. What was offered was a powerful life, a powerful, victorious life with a purpose. What he did was to give you a purpose. Is there anybody here who thinks on a semi-regularly basis, I know a lot of us do, unfortunately, that their life doesn't have a purpose, that there's no point I hear it all the time. What is my purpose here? I don't know what my purpose here. I guess I just live until I die. I just make it to the finish line and I die. A lot of people who are secure in Christ, they know that their salvation is secure. They're just waiting for that day when they die. They cross under the checkered flag. It's over and they go to heaven. But that's not all there is to a life in Christ. It is a victorious life meant for a purpose here on earth. You ever think about this? If it was all just about our salvation and that's all it was, the minute you said, yes, I believe in Jesus, wouldn't a loving God just take you home immediately? Let's avoid all this. I got bills to pay next month. I'd rather just end this before I have to write that check. Anybody ever think about that? Or maybe it's just me. (laughs) Maybe it's just me. That's not how it works, though. The minute you give your life to Christ, that's when your eternal life begins. Not someday, not the day you die. It begins that day. And that day, that eternal life is one of victory, and it's one of purpose. That's what Jesus accomplished for us. So we're talking a lot about purpose right now. So what's our purpose? That's probably the logical question to ask after that. Jesus died to give you a purpose. We do have a purpose. What's the purpose? John 20, 21. Jesus says these words, and we're going we're gonna to pull it apart here. Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So the Father sent Jesus, now Jesus is sending us. So then we should back up, if you're a thinker, we back up a little bit and go, why did the Father send Jesus? We talk about that a lot, but I think if you boil it all down, every reason that most of us are coming up with why the Father sent Jesus comes down to a very simple answer. Because he loves us. Father sent his only son because he loves us. And if that's why he sent Jesus, would it not then be our job 
to love others. I don't think I'm reaching. I don't think that's a big stretch. I think it's our job to love others. Paul says so. Everybody remember Paul? He wrote three-fourths of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul said this, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And John, the Apostle John, records probably the most clear and unambiguous statement. Jesus likes to talk in parables. He likes to teach in things that make you think. This is the most clear statement about the reason why the Father sent him. This is from John, John 6, 38 to 40. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of everything he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's pretty clear. That's not a parable. That's not hard to understand. Those that the Father has given to Jesus, the mission is none would be lost. And that's the mission that gets passed on to us. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I think that we can start, one of the biggest things we can do to draw people to Christ is to reflect the character of God to a world that has no idea what that looks like. They think they know. They see images all over the place of what the love of God, air quotes, is supposed to look like, and it looks more like hate and exclusion to me and judgment. We've done that as a culture, or better yet, we've allowed that to happen. I think the plan from the beginning was that mankind would reflect God's glory and character to the world, that they would do that. But from the very beginning, sin also entered the world and changed that plan, as God knew it would. Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So God sent his son Jesus to show us on earth what it means to live a life reflecting God's glory. You ever wonder why Jesus had to come to earth and walk around in the flesh? So that we could see how it's done. So that the apostles could record how Jesus did it so that we could read about it and we could learn about it and study it thousands of years later so that we could see this is how it's done. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Jesus was the very image of God here on earth. And through communion and discipleship with Jesus, we are slowly, ever so slowly, becoming a worthy reflection of who he is. That should be our goal. As disciples and followers of Christ, our goal should be every day we look a little bit more like Christ. We're a little bit more of a worthy reflection of who God is. And if you don't know Christ, and you have met people who are not 
a good reflection of who God is, then I apologize to you right now because that's not who we're called to be. We are not called to be judge and jury. We are called to love. And if we're not doing that, that's on us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, again, Paul says, but we all with unveiled faces looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. It's happening. It's happening. Are we going to be an active participant in that and showing what God has done in our hearts to the rest of the world? We should be. So if God sent Jesus because he loves us and doesn't want to lose anyone to the lies and the schemes and the tricks of Satan, is then Jesus sending us to love those who don't know him and to help overcome all the deception and the lies of Satan to this world? Kind of a rhetorical question. I think so. I hope you would agree. So when I look at the words of Jesus to the disciples, I see it as a direct charge for us to pick up his banner and go out into the world and continue the work of making sure that none are lost. That's our job. Now, how does this tie into Easter? You're probably going, I I hear messages like this. How is this an Easter message? Because we don't do it by blending in with everyone else. We don't do that. We don't pick up the banner of Christ and go out into this world and make sure that none are lost by blending in, laying low, and keeping your faith to yourself. That's not how that happens. We do it by loving the unloved, by loving the unlovable. John 13, 34, 35 Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another just as I've loved you, that you also love one another. And then he says this, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Accepting those that the world sees as unacceptable. Loving those who the flesh might have you keep at arm's length. That's different. That's not what the world expects of Christians, unfortunately. The world expects judgment, exclusion. Matthew records this confrontation that Jesus had with the Pharisees over those that the Pharisees deemed as unacceptable. I'm going to read this to you. Most of us have heard this account before, but I want to get it fresh in your mind. Matthew 9, 10 to 13. Then it happened... That as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and began dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now go and learn what that means. I desire compassion rather than sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's how we do that. We love 
the unlovable, we accept those who the world seems as unacceptable. That's the first way. The second way is by holding on to truth, but in a loving way. Easier said than done. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 17. Remind them of these things and solemnly exhort them in the presence of God not to dispute about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the listeners. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. That's pretty straightforward. Accurately handling the word of truth. How do you think you do that? Is it with a two-hand overhand grip like this? Right? That's how a lot of people want to handle the word of truth. That's not what we're called to do. The only way I think that we can not handle truth like that, how we can love those who are difficult sometimes to love, is the ability to have peace, supernatural peace, in the face of overwhelming attacks. And that's what I want to take the rest of my time here and talk about. The ability to have supernatural peace in the face of attack. There's so much scripture that is dedicated to showing us how to stand in a godly way in the face of attacks. John 16, These things I have spoken to you, again, this is Jesus' words. I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. He's promising there that we're going to have trouble. But he gives us peace. Does anybody have stories? <clears throat> Think about it. Think about it for a minute. I'm going to ask in a minute. Stories of how supernatural peace, only the peace that Christ can give you, how that has changed your life, or maybe an interaction where your supernatural peace has helped to have somebody else see that. Maybe somebody saw peace in you when you shouldn't have had peace, and there's no explanation for it, and they come to you and ask why, and you're able to say, because Jesus. I'm going to share a couple stories with you. Anybody ever heard of King David? King David, God's chosen leader of Israel. He was special. He was beloved by God. God had a special place in his heart for King David. But King David's life did not look like he was the chosen one always. But he was able to have peace, supernatural peace, in the face of attacks that came his way that, that would make a great movie, and some of them have, but they would never do justice to what he went through. Listen to this. David wrote a lot of the Psalms. Some of you know that, some of you don't. But he wrote a lot of the Psalms, and most of them were written either as he was being chased around the country with swords and knives and people who wanted to kill him, or as he was later in life looking back at how God got him through that time. That's what most of the Psalms revolve around, the ones that David wrote. Psalm 5, 1 through 7, he writes this. 
Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will present my prayer to you and be on the watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil can dwell with you. The boastful will not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do injustice. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord loathes the person of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant graciousness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. If you knew or familiar with the stories of how David was chased around, for him to be able to stop and say, look, this, I, I pray to you, I cry out to you because this, this is terrible, but I trust in you. And I know that you are going to be the one that fights my battles. That gives him that supernatural peace to be able to write things like that. So does anyone have any examples? I said, I want, hopefully you've been thinking for a minute of how your faith gave you supernatural peace at a time when no one else around you had it. I know probably a lot of you have stories, and I promised I would try and keep the message tight, so I want to just share a couple biblical stories. So we've all had troubles like that. We've all had trials. We've all had things come our way. But have you ever heard of these three guys found in Scripture? Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Anyone heard of them? You've probably all had a trial, but I doubt you've had one like these guys had. Let me share this story with you. It's found in Daniel 3. If you want to read the entire account of what happened here, I'm going to try and compress it down a little bit. Three young men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 600 years before Jesus was born, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had imprisoned most of the remaining Israelites, had enslaved them, had taken these three guys, though, these guys are Jews, had taken them and set them aside because they were really good with, with administration. And he said, I'm going to put you guys in charge of, of administration, but they still worked under him. And Nebuchadnezzar was so full of himself, so full of his own power, that he built, Scripture tells us, is 30 meters high, which is about 90 feet, about a 90-foot tall golden statue of himself that he had built. And he passed a law, since he's supreme ruler, king, any title he wanted to give himself, he passed this law that said, anytime you hear music of any kind, you need to bow down and worship at that golden statue. Throughout all of Babylon, that was the law. And if you don't, the penalty for it is that they're going to throw you into the metal smelter that was used to melt the metal to make the statue. Anybody here know what a metal smelter is? Or a a kiln, I guess, if you do pottery and stuff, it's kind of similar. It gets warm in there, right? All right, so Nebuchadnezzar hears about these three Jewish officials who are refusing to bow to the idol. 
Okay, never good news when your name comes before Nebuchadnezzar in that sort of a context. But he hears about it, so he brings him in for questioning. Okay, so we're going to pick it up in Daniel 3, verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar began speaking and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, nor worship the golden statue that I have set up? Their answer, verses 16 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not in need of an answer to give you concerning this matter. If it be so, our God who we serve is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods nor worship the golden statue that you have set up. All right, you can imagine it's a little tense right now, right? Filled with just rage. Nebuchadnezzar not only says, I'm going to throw you guys into the furnace, he says, let's turn the furnace up seven times hotter than it normally is. Seven times hotter than necessary to to melt gold and all these other metals. He turns it up so hot that as the guards are escorting these three to the furnace, they get close to it and they burn up. It's that hot. Now we pick it up. Daniel 3, verses 24 through 26. Nebuchadnezzar is expecting to see them burnt to ashes, screaming in agony. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound into the middle of the fire? They replied to the king, absolutely, O king. He responded, look, I see four men untied and walking about in the middle of the fire unharmed. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the most high God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the middle of the fire. The result... The results, just a couple verses later in Daniel 28 and 29, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and surrendered their bodies rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or population of any language that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Somebody has to get it, right? And their houses made a rubbish heap because there is no other God who is able to save in this way. Can you imagine how their peace, their supernatural faith in peace, that God No matter what happened to them, God was fighting their battles for them. No matter how it turned out, it changed the course of history. That history is well documented, by the way. You think like, what what an amazing story that's in Scripture. That's documented from other sources. But not only did it change history, it can change your life too. Now, a more maybe a more modern example, but equally, equally powerful 
of that kind of faith, that kind of faith that one person shows in the midst of overwhelming odds can affect the faith of many. Now, I want to apologize because I made this clip or took this clip out from a movie. Anybody ever seen a movie called Hacksaw Ridge? If you haven't, I highly recommend it. It is, it is a war movie, okay? It's about a World War II battle that happened on the island of Okinawa. Um, it's especially meaningful for me because my grandfather fought on that island um, and was gravely wounded and later died of his injuries there. But this movie is a true account of a man who was a pacifist, who knew that he needed to serve his country, but he refused to hold a gun. What he does is he becomes a medic. I'm going to show you the clip, and, and hopefully it makes sense to you, and we'll talk about it after. With the world so set on tearing itself apart, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. By the dust, you are free to run into the hellfire of battle without a single weapon to protect yourself. All right. There's nothing short of a miracle, and they want a piece of it. And they're not going to go up there without you. Let's go to work. Private Doss, without carrying a gun, just he was a medic. He ended up bringing single-handedly 75 wounded soldiers down off of that ridge. It was so, the, the gunfire and the, and the opposition was so much that the other soldiers couldn't even go up there. They were trying to regroup, and he went up there and single-handedly brought down 75. That was just on that first day. And from that point on, his company who had been mocking him because he wouldn't carry a gun, refused to do anything unless he prayed for them before they went. It's a great example of how one man's faith 
in a, in a worldly way, completely unfounded. But in Christ, secure in who you are and who's going to fight your battles and your calling, he could do anything, and that's what he did. He didn't do anything that the rest of us couldn't do if God called us to do that. It's a great story, but it's one that we could play out in our lives in different ways over and over again if we simply just had the faith and the peace that God will fight my battle. It's my job to make sure that none are lost. Did you hear him saying, please, Lord, just help me get one more? I feel like that should be my cry when I go out every day. We're never promised a life that's without trouble. In fact, we're promised just the opposite. But the peace that comes from complete faith in a loving and sovereign God will enable us to face anything that comes our way with a confidence and a peace that will draw others to want to know why. And then we can share that Jesus Christ is that way. We're called to spread the good news to a world that in large part finds it unbelievable. Pop culture dictates what's admirable and what's true. I don't know about you, but I don't want pop culture to dictate to me what is admirable and what is true and what glorifies God. Followers of Christ, though, we're called to be different. We serve a king whose kingdom doesn't follow the rules of this world. You've heard this one probably, John 18, 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And here's the thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we celebrate at Easter is a victory that many people will struggle to understand because it doesn't put a stop to the fighting. Think about that. We say it's a victory. Normally when there's a victory, that means the fighting stops. This victory that Christ won for us doesn't stop the fighting, but it empowers us to stand under that banner and carry it confidently into the battles of this life. And, and our battle is to make sure that none are lost, to call others to the king's table. That's what we should do. And, and church, that's what I'll celebrate, not just on Easter Sunday, but every day. I want to wake up in the morning and just say, Lord, help me get one more. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful for the peace, the confidence that I'm able to face this life. Everything that this life can throw at me, I can face knowing that you have won the battle. I don't have to fight it on my own. I have to rest in the fact that you are victorious and you have given me everything I need to face this world. Everything this world can throw at me and know and be confident that I'm going to be victorious. Lord, I am so thankful for the blood of Jesus. I am so thankful for the power and the peace. And I'm thankful for the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take communion together now as the worship team plays on. The sacrament of communion called the Lord's Supper often. It's one of the most sacred and powerful things that we can do as a body of Christ to get together. 
every time we do it, we join together as a body and we say yes to the mission that Jesus gave us. He said, do this in remembrance of me. We're sharing the body broken on the cross to pay the price for our sins. The blood, the blood of the new covenant shed to cleanse us. All of that, we remember that, but we should also remember that with that comes a charge, and that is to go out, continue his work, making sure that none are lost. That's our job, and it's not one to be taken lightly. So as we come up and we take our take communion up here, we're demonstrating that we are not only one as a body, but we are one with Christ. That's what we do. We don't take it lightly. We have a prayer team in the back. If you're struggling maybe with that decision, maybe you haven't even made the decision that I want to follow Christ yet. He makes it so easy. Really, you don't have to tell anybody. You don't have to get up. You just have to say yes and stop denying. But there is power in saying that with someone who can come alongside you and say, yes, we agree, and maybe give you a hint or two of where to go from there. But what's important is that we just stop saying no. We stop saying, I need to blend in with this world. I need to be more like the world. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be like Christ. That's what I want. So if you haven't made that decision, you can do it right now. Again, people in the prayer team in the back, they can pray healing with you. They can pray, pray salvation with you. Anything that you need prayer for, we're here for you. So take advantage of that. And then let's move around and take communion. The way we'll do it is we'll come together in the middle, come down front. Um, there's a self-serve table in the back, and that's got wine. If you would rather, uh, that, has, that has wine. That has juice. I've confused everybody. The table in the back has juice if you don't want wine. Up front, on either side, we'll be serving you wine and bread. And if you want that, you don't need to be a part of this church. You don't need to do anything special. You just have to have said yes to Jesus and we invite you to join us in that. So as we worship, feel free to just start moving around and doing that. Thank you, guys.